Planning for uncertainty is no easy task, but climate change is forcing communities around the globe to plan for uncertain futures. While we know the planet is warming, and that could affect everything from farming to forestry to flooding, what we don't know is just how big the impact will be or how dire the circumstances. That hasn't stopped cities from trying to figure out how to prevent a climate-caused catastrophe. Today on Stats and Stories, we're talking rising seas and the difficulty of protecting coastal communities, amongst other things. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. I'm joined in the studio by regular panelist, Statistics Department Chair John Bain and Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our guest today is Peter Gutur, Professor Emeritus of Statistics at the University of Washington, Professor at the Norwegian Computing Center, and Co-Director of the Research Network on Statistical Methods for Atmospheric and Ocean Sciences, or STATMOS. Gutorp is also one of the authors of an article in Significance magazine, which explores how the Norwegian city of Bergen is working to create a plan to save its historic harbor from possible future flooding. Thank you so much for being here today, Peter. Glad to be here. In your article, you say that most climate change models don't predict a rise in sea level. Um, and that seems like such a pressing concern for so many communities, including Bergen. Could you explain what makes predicting a rise in sea levels so difficult? Well, first, what I actually said was that most climate models don't compute that. Okay. Well, that's what I meant anyway. Okay. Um, uh, so climate models deal with the entire climate system, and including oceans and, and atmosphere and, and uh, other things. And um, the actual sea level is not important for the physics of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, it's very important for... Uh, People who are trying to keep um, buildings from flooding and and, uh, things like that. So you have to measure uh, sea level globally. Uh, You have to measure sea level locally, and those two are not the same. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not an easy problem, but no climate problems are really easy. (laughs) I thought it was interesting in your in your paper, Peter, when you talked about the idea of these are projections and not predictions. Could you right. talk a little bit more about the idea of the projection versus prediction distinction? Yeah, if you were trying to predict what's going to happen, you have to have a model for how governments are going to deal with uh, with emissions, for how. Um, economy is going to deal with growth of uh, electric cars and things like that. Uh, We don't have models at that level. And so instead of trying to predict the future, we outline some scenarios that um, describe, for example, the degree of of, uh, emissions of, of uh, greenhouse gases. And so uh, the current uh, IPCC report uses four such scenarios. Uh, one that's business as usual, uh, nothing much changes, a couple that are a little lower, and one that, that essentially says, well, what would happen if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases around the year 2000. Now, all these projections, so runs of the computer models, 
using these scenarios for what's going to happen in the future are run run typically um, 3,000 years back and then 100 years forward. Okay. To, to calibrate the models? Uh, 3,000 years back to, to calibrate. calibrate the model and make the ocean and the atmosphere uh, uh, work together. Hmm. There's an interesting use of, of, of the, uh, the word model. So there's, there's models in different – you might have models for prediction and you have models describing this physical system. Can you just say a, a little bit more about the, the types of models that are used? Uh, basically, the models are, um, you know, technically solutions to partial differential equations describing um, the behavior of the atmosphere, the behavior of the oceans, the interactions between the two, uh, and then the further interactions with ice and and um, land use and things like that. Uh, so these are are mathematical models that can't be solved um, analytically. They have to be solved numerically, and therefore you have to approximate things. Uh, you use uh, you solve them on large grid squares. And um, then you need to think about how does that relate to what actually happens at a point like the harbor of Bergen, where people are concerned. And, and the truth is that the global models don't tell you much about that. Uh, so to go from global models to local models, you have to somehow downscale it. You have to make it smaller. And uh, the downscaling is, is, there are several different ways of doing it. What we're doing in our paper is what's called a statistical downscaling. We write down a statistical model for the relationship between, um, between global sea level and local sea level and uh, try to use that to predict uh, what's going to happen in the harbor of Bergen. Very good. Peter, as one of the two journalists in the room, um, I'm interested in the, the, the notion of uncertainty. This is something that when journalists report the work of statisticians or scientists, they don't usually talk about uncertainty. Um, and this is certainly, when you try to explain this, for instance, to policymakers, the, the people that are going to make decisions about what to do in this particular case in Bergen, how do you explain uncertainty to them? And, uh, and, and to an audience that's not an audience of statisticians? Well, there's a couple of different things one can talk about. I used to teach a course, a freshman seminar at the university uh, called Uncertainty is Knowledge. Hmm. Um, and the idea there was really to explain, well, how can, how can you tell, for example, what the global mean temperature is. You can't measure it. We don't have any tools for measuring global mean temperature. We can measure temperature in places. We can sometimes do uh, satellite measurements that, that are well related to, to temperatures. Uh, but there's going to be some uncertainty because we don't measure it everywhere. And that uncertainty has to be taken into account. Uh, our paper about the uh, sea level in Bergen 
shows that if you don't take it into account, if you just sort of ignore the uncertainty, there are several different pieces to the puzzle, and and each piece has uncertainty associated with it. If you just ignore it and just take sort of an average measurement for each of the each of the pools, you're going to be way below in what the cost of damages in the harbor is going to be. Mm-hmm. And when you take uncertainty into account, you 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 see that this could less easily be ten times more expensive than you would think if you just gave one number. Very good. So it's important to give a number and some sense of how uncertain that number and the way we do it is the same way that that IPCC does it we give what's called a 90% confidence interval you're listening to stats and stories today we're talking about planning for an uncertain climate with co-director of statmos peter guturp now peter when i was doing some background research for you i saw that you at one point had studied journalism before moving into studying math and statistics, and I think musicology was also listed there. Did studying journalism sort of impact the way you present scientific material? Um, or, or And why did you switch, uh, switch gears? Well, um, that's several questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, the first one is, yes, it certainly has influenced how I... How I uh, it has, above all, influenced the importance I put on communicating science to non-scientists. So I, I, this kind of thing is, is something I find very important. The reason I started doing statistics in, in the U.S., I got a scholarship to go to Berkeley, and the idea was to get a master's degree in statistics and and... Uh, become a science journalist. Mm-hmm. Ah. Well, then they talked me into staying and getting a PhD, <laughs> and I got a job and a family, and, and and the journalism sort of got on the back burner. But it's always been there as as one of the things I find very important in, in, in you know, what I learned in, in journalism school was thinking about who you're writing for mm-hmm. um, and who you are as a writer. And, and being very explicit about uh, sort of that whole situation. I, I also wanted to compliment you on, uh, until I got to the actual statistics and the tables and the numbers <laughs> where I become lost, getting to that was, your writing's really good. You really drew me in. You, you know how to tell a story. Uh, so that l- little bit of journalism experience paid off. <laughs> It certainly did. <laughs> Thank you for that compliment. <laughs> so, so I'm journal- sorry you got lost. The idea was to not get lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, so journalism's loss is statistics gain here. So, that's right. yeah, that's, uh, you know, one thing that, that in looking at this, you, you talked about all of these, there, there are lots of moving pieces in the, the story that you're, you're working on here. You know, the, right. the idea of the uncertainty that's, that's what's going to happen with sea level changes, the uncertainty that's associated with the, the, the costs, the distribution of impact of costs. And, and you talk a little bit about the, the idea of extreme flooding and, and how it might affect infrastructure like bridges and buildings and storm sewers and other, other structure. I, you, you also mentioned that Bergen is a, has a historic city. And, and the idea of, uh, I, I was thinking, how do you value kind of impacts and changes to, to the loss of historic sites? 
Good question, <laughs> obviously. Uh, what can you say about that? Well, what has happened in Bergen is that it used to be a Hanseatic city. So it was part of the Northern European trading network in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. um, which was where a lot of the the commercial activity in, in, in Northern Europe happened. And so they had a, uh, an office for the Hanseatic, for the Hanseatic um, organization, and they had a bunch of buildings. Now these were wooden buildings and, and uh, they burned down. Uh, in fact, they burned down at least twice. And, mm -hmm. and so the buildings that are currently there are built like the traditional uh, mm. buildings from the, from the Middle Ages, but they are relatively new. Oh, okay. And and so the damage that happens to them is not as serious as it would have been if they were actual uh, medieval uh, buildings. Mm -hmm. But it's still important, and and they are a um, World Heritage Site, and 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 the Norwegian government is. Um, required to keep things from happening. Uh, well, they do flood quite frequently. Mm -hmm. And, and, and um, so that's why the Bergen authorities are thinking about how we're going to uh, keep this from happening so often, especially if sea level goes up. You, you mentioned before you talked about one of your goals is communicating science to non-scientists. That's something that you're interested in. So, you know, we live in a time where we're, you know, one of our critiques in journalism is making sure students don't, in, don't get into this notion of false balance, mm. you know, where you have those who believe, in, who, who believe in climate change and those who don't. And these are two equally divided uh, segments. So we have to work hard, I think, in journalism classes to making sure students understand that all issues aren't divided into two equally equal sides. So how do, do you have any suggestions for how you sort of confront this notion of, uh, well, you know, there's people that have belief systems that, you know, that they, they, they don't seem to, to buy into climate change, even though the, the science and the evidence is there for it. How do you wrestle with that in communicating to non-scientists? Well, it's, First of all, difficult to deal with people who will not accept science as, mm -hmm. as a process. Yes, you got that right. Uh, it, it's, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. um, what you can do as a journalist is try to uh, push the person you're, you're talking to to describe which pieces of, of, of the whole system we actually know. Mm. For example, mm -hmm. um, we know that uh, increased greenhouse gases increases um, temperature. That was a calculation by a Swedish chemist in, in the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that this, is, this is old physics. Uh, what we don't know is how fast is the ice on Greenland going to melt? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have models for each of these things. 
the models for the ice melt in Iceland are not as precise as the models for, for the temperature increase when we increase greenhouse gases. Neither of the two are completely precise. I mean, we can't say if we double uh, CO2, what is the temperature going to be? Um, we can give a range, but we can't give a number. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is Peter Guttorp, who is the author of an article for Significant Mag- Significance magazine about how Bergen, Norway, is planning to combat rising seas. You mentioned a little earlier, Peter, how important you think it is um, to communicate science for a non-science audience. And Richard sort of has been asking about you know advice for journalists. But I wonder, what advice would you have for scientists who are doing work like yours or work that is also sort of dealing with these big, complex issues? about how they can uh, communicate clearly, um, you know, what's at stake in the research they're doing? Well, it's, it's you know, it's something you have to, you have to practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that you can do just um, out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've argued for a long time that we ought to have courses mm-hmm. in statistics for journalists and we ought to have courses in communications for statisticians. Mm-hmm. We agree. Now, <laughs> there are lots of those for, for general scientists, mm-hmm. and I've gone to some of them. And, and, and a difficulty there is that statisticians uh, deal with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And the explanation of uncertainty, as we've been talking about before, to non-statisticians, is not easy. <laughs> right, complicated co- concept, and one has to somehow come up with better ways of, of talking about it. And that's why I think it need one needs specialized courses. Well, I've I've applied for grants to do these kinds of things, and and uh, the National Science Foundation didn't find that terribly important, and so they didn't <laughs> fund the grants. Um, I find it terribly important. You know, I think... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I was intrigued at your your course that you taught, The Uncertainty is Knowledge. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, when I think about uncertainty and variability in systems, you know, I think that more knowledge of a system can, will help reduce uncertainty, but it'll just better characterize variability. That's, that's, that's yet another distinction that sometimes seems lost. Right. I mean, uh, some people, uh, divide uncertainty into epistemic uncertainty, uncertainty that, that is, has to do with our understanding and uh, aleatoric uncertainty, which is uh, due to the fact that we don't measure exactly and things like that. In, indeed. Hey, I, w- I want to revisit the, uh, the, the paper. And, and there, there, were, there were three options for contr- you know, uh, that the council can take, that the politicians can take. And, you know, you've done some work to try to help them. So just, just for folks that are listening, can you do a quick recap of the options that are available and how the modeling effort that, that you did helped inform what, a, what might be done? Well, basically, there, were, there was a very expensive option, hmm. which was to build um, some kind of a barrier 
Uh, Bergen is in the, at the end of a fjord, uh, as most Norwegian cities are. And so this would put the barrier outside the fjord. Uh, it would probably um, would affect the, the ecology of the fjord fairly substantially. And, and as I said, it would be very expensive. Uh, but it would keep um, the entire fjord system from, from uh, getting substantial uh, sea level rise. Other alternatives had to do with building smaller barriers um, and one could choose to, to protect different areas. Uh, we, we calculated for a system where, where they had two barriers uh, inside uh, the fjord, so closer to the, to the harbor. Um, and our calculations, which took into account the cost of, of, um, of flooding, took into account the likely sea level rise and, and uh, how much costs are going to increase with increased sea level rise. All three pieces of those are, are uncertain. Um, <laughs> and our calculations showed that there was no point in doing the outside expensive barrier. It, you know, from a, from a cost-benefit point of view, it was simply not worth it. Hmm. It was too expensive. It was an order of magnitude more expensive than the cost would be, hmm. uh, even in, a, in, in, in the worst scenario and at the highest, uh, lev highest boundary of the confidence band. But the other uh, options, we could say when they should do them. Hmm. We could actually say when would you when would be the most feasible way of building these things? And it wasn't right away. It was doing it a little bit later, uh, around 2040 or 2050, depending mm -hmm. on which, um, which type of, of uh, pessimism you want to deal with as a decision maker. <laughs> the interesting thing about this is that the Norwegian authorities have told the planners that they are to use calculations based on the upper 90% confidence band for the highest scenario. Oh, wow. So that would never happen in the, in the U.S. <laughs> they're, they're being conservative and protective in their decision-making. They're being conservative and protective, and they don't want things to be bad. Yeah. Have you consulted at all with them? Oh, we talked to them, yeah. And have they been pretty receptive to some of the, the modeling and the, the, the sort of the, the process that you described for deciding amongst the alternatives? Yeah. Your the recommendation Norwegian has been... Authority who, who are charged with doing that themselves. And, and our answers and their answers uh, for the sea level are pretty similar. Your recommendation has been the more modest... Building the barriers inside the fjords, right? Right. Yes. Okay. So, what what would you recommend to some to someone a, a student who is interested in and in working on these types of problems that you know they're if they were coming from the the, the stat side, what what might they do? Or if they were coming from the journalism side, mm -hmm. what might they do to to be to equip themselves to work on these problems or to report on these problems? Uh, 
easiest part is the first one to <laughs> say what statisticians need to do. They need to know something about time series. They need to know something about spatial statistics. Uh, they need to understand regression. And they need to know the difference between um, pointwise and simultaneous confidence intervals, which I'm not going to explain now, but it's explained in the article. <laughs> <laughs> Richard will summarize this. So read the article. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as to journalists, um, find somebody who works on it and and work with them. Mm -hmm. And there was a wonderful article in in in, um, in New York Times over the weekend on the effect of sea level rise in, um, in Louisiana. And there was no mention of uncertainty. Uh -huh. And so, you know, I mean, that, that one focused on, on the effects and, and, and how the, the town is trying to protect itself and, and uh, the difficulties it has um, getting funding and things like that. Uh, because New Orleans gets much more funding than they do. Um, but... You know that it's um, it's what's going to happen twenty or thirty years down the line uh, that's going to matter to these people mm -hmm. more than what's happening right now, mm -hmm. and, and the uncertainty in that is it needs to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, that's all the time we have for today's conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program. Send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.